One thing to be reminded of as we continue through our study of Daniel is that the underlying current that I've wanted to bring to the surface whenever you study Daniel is this idea of true and false worship, the true and false gods, the true and false church and the way that they worship and the reason that the gods even ask for their worship. We're immediately introduced to the worship of Babylon versus the worship of Jerusalem. If you look at the difference between idolatry and the religion of Israel, idolatry is a religion fashioned in humanity's image. The one fundamental difference between idolatry and worshiping a living God is that who is in charge of the worship? In idolatry, it's the worshiper that's in charge because it's the worshiper that created the God. When you worship a living God, it's the God that's in charge, for he created the worshiper. The worshiper in an idol object blessing or curse relationship expects blesses or curses automatically based on their behavior, based on what they've done, which means they're the ones in control, they're the ones in charge. By the way, it's a very convenient way to worship because when the idol no longer serves your purpose, guess what you get to do? You get to make a new one who hopefully will down the road uh, serve your purpose. The revelation of Israel, of Jerusalem, is the one from above, the worship of a living God, of one that can establish or has decided he will establish a personal relationship with the worshiper. And not only it implies an exchange of love, but also an exchange of questions. One who invites the worshiper into a relationship with him as he enters into the worshiper's timeline and history and acts and says, you and me, let's walk, let's talk. Ancient gods could be manipulated. They could be coerced. Why? Because they were human concoctions. They had human emotions. All the gods that humanity ever created, the divine power is the power that we can attribute to nature. Earthquakes, thunder, uh, fire, uh, plagues, all of these things which seem to be completely beyond human control, they put those gods in charge of those or attributed that power to those gods. The problem was, was that those gods had very human emotions. They had fallen natures the same as the ones that created them. They can, con- and even within the mythologies, they can con- concocted extraordinary humans. In Greek mythology, Hercules and Odysseus and the Titans could actually do battle with the gods because they wanted to put that hope in there that the gods might be in control, but there is hope that the humans could actually defeat them, maybe. We see attempts in the Bible of God's own children trying to manipulate him. Jacob tried it. Moses tried it. In Jacob's encounter, face-to-face encounter with God, there comes a point in time where he asks him his name. And remember, the angel said, why is it you ask my name? Jacob didn't answer because he knew why he asked. He asked his name so maybe he could get control of this situation. 
And Moses, this trained priest of Egypt, this one step away from Pharaoh, the one that was trained to, to worship all the Egyptian gods, he tried it on God too. If they ask me, who is it that sent you? They're gonna ask, what is your name? What is your name? And God said, I don't play those games, Moses. You know the names of the Egyptian gods because you created them. They ask you who I am, you tell them just that. I am. And how did God make sure that this would, wouldn't happen with his worshipers? It's because he told them the difference between the Egyptian gods and him. The Egyptian gods didn't care about the voices of anguish and crying out in, in, in slavery. God says, I've heard the voices of my children crying out and I have come down. And when he calls them out of slavery, he calls them to the foot of Sinai and actually calls them up to Sinai in order to what? In order to complete him coming down, us coming up, we get to walk with him and talk with him. His goal ever since he created us. Something that cannot be manipulated. You and I can't manipulate that. We walk and talk with God. He's in charge. He's in control. All he asks is that we show up and that we talk to him. Is that we show up and that we walk with him. We cannot manipulate that. We can't manipulate the creator of all time. Sabbath, when it came time for him to construct a place, a, a uh, not a place, but a um, a, a regular opportunity, if you will, to set all else aside and spend it only with him. He didn't construct a place. He constructed a cathedral in time, something that couldn't be manipulated, something that's going to come every seven days, whether you and I worship or not. From last Sabbath until now, all of us could have decided that we were going to leave God and we were going to turn our worship into some idol somewhere, yet what happened? Sabbath still showed up today. We can't manipulate that. He himself comes down. And in doing so, reveals himself to us like no human God would ever care to or would ever even attempt to. Eventually, if nothing else, if nothing else, if you really wanna know what God is like, all you have to do is hear the word about Jesus. Because Jesus is the full radiance and revelation of God the Father. Have I not been with you for so long, my children, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the true religion of the God of Israel. And this is what Daniel is facing in chapter six. I hate to have to tell you this, but this is the last of the felt stories. Next week, we take the exit to the zoo. Y'all been waiting for that, haven't you? Actually, I'm not 100% sure. There is one uh, pre-study to the zoo that I like to do Except in today's world, I'm not sure that it would do us any good. So we may go directly to the zoo next week. I'm not 100% sure. But don't worry, I got us our tickets. 
I bought them before sundown last Sabbath so we can go to the zoo if uh, that's where we're headed. But Daniel 6 in the lion's den is the last of the felt stories. And it is the feltiest of all felt stories. I don't know any cradle roll felt that does not include a lion's den set. When we sing Dare to Be a Daniel, what is the very first thing that comes up? Is that we go willingly to the lion's den. I'm not sure that should be a children's song. But this is what Daniel faces. This war, this battle, the ultimate uh, um, confrontation, if you will, between the worship of Babylon and the worship of Israel. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that would be in charge of the whole kingdom. If you've forgotten, remember the end of chapter five, Babylon actually falls. And who begins to take over? Who is the chest of silver? Or the shoulders, if you will, of silver? It's the Medes and the Persians. Darius is the very first uh, uh, ruler of this. And he decides he's going to appoint 120 satraps. Picture governors. Governors over regions. And they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. So he takes the Babylonian way and he chops it up even more. He gives a little bit more local control to the regions. And he makes them these governors. And over those three, he appoints three commissioners of whom Daniel is one. Remember, Belshazzar leaves Daniel third in charge of the whole kingdom. Darius has found that that's a good position for Daniel, so he keeps him there. That these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself amongst the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Darius is even more impressed with Daniel than Belshazzar was. And he's eventually going to put him in charge, it sounds like. And the commissioners and the satraps, was that good news to them? No. Not this guy. This exile you're going to put in charge? Commissioners and satraps begin trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. They want some dirt on him, but they can't find any. They can't find any dirt when it comes to government. Why were they looking for corruption in Daniel? They don't want him in charge. And by the way, they're probably corrupt, which is why they're not being placed in charge. So if we can show that Daniel's no more reliable than us, then we still have a shot. But they hate Daniel. They really do. So they said, well, if we're not going to find anything in regard to his governmental affairs and his role in government and how he works, then we won't find any ground of accusation unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Daniel is now surrounded by those who would be God, who think that they are God, and they are beginning to play God in his life. 
See, just as his friends faced the self-proclaimed God Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter two, Daniel now faces this version of a human concocted deity, one that appears to hold life or death. At least Daniel's life and for anybody else because of the plan that they come up with. And here's their plan. They came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. That's a pretty typical greeting of a king. Most people greet that way. Daniel used to greet Nebuchadnezzar that way. O king, live forever. Long live the king. We still do it today. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you. Again, the universal idea, it happened with Babylon, it happens with the Medes and the Persians, it will happen with Greece, is that when the humans become uh, able to rule the world, especially the civilized, civilized ruled, uh, world is, is that their idea is, is that if there are gods out there and those gods favor these particular nations, then if I carry out as a human defeat upon the others, I not only defeated the nation, I also defeated their god. Hence, they become gods themselves. And there isn't really any universal uh, ruler in history that did not believe themselves to be somewhat of a deity. The Caesars all believed that they were somewhat of a deity in the pantheon of Roman gods. The pharaohs were deified. Nebuchadnezzar and all of the rulers of Babylon are deified. And we see that maybe Darius not quite convinced yet, but he certainly has now those people under him trying to make him a what? To make him a god. Because they need him to be a god in this particular scenario. Anyone who makes petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days, there's a 30-day moratorium that no one, no one prays to anybody but who? But Darius. For 30 days. And if they do, they shall be cast into what? Into the lion's den. See, they seem to hold now life and death. This human concocted deity thinks that they have control now over Daniel's life and his death. So king, establish this injunction. Sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Darius says, that sounds pretty good to me. There's not a lot of people who'd be able to turn that down. Right? Not a lot of people in charge that if all the other people in charge came to you and said, guess what? We will make you God. Huh, let me think about it. Darius didn't even think about it. He signs the injunction. 
So now deity has been replaced by these humans. The same word for law in verse five as in verse eight. The law of God, when they said back in verse five that we're gonna have to find something to accuse Daniel based on the law of his God, that is the same word that is used here for the Medes and the Persians. It's just that it is bedat elohe, the law of God, is now replaced by bedat medi perez, the law of the Medes and the Persians. They have equaled themselves to who in Daniel's life? Well, they think that they have. And it's again the religion of Babylon rearing up its head. It's no longer called Babylon anymore. The Babylonians uh, uh, were defeated by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians have stepped in and they have no problem using the worship of Babylon, although their name is now on it. If you will not worship Darius, Darius will make you worship him. He will use all of his political and military and civil power to make you worship him as God. That is the religion of Babylon. And any nation that tries to force you to worship a God is using the worship of Babylon. It's been proven since, hasn't it? In fact, Daniel will introduce us to this little horn. The little horn will introduce us to the concept of the beast. The one beast will introduce the next one, which takes us all the way to the end of what? To the end of time. Babylon is all in on this idea that if you won't worship God, we'll use the government to make you worship God. They're all in. This is Daniel's first opportunity with it, though. The king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you shall be cast in the lion's den. Back in chapter 3, it says, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the blazing fire. Just as his friends were faced with it with Nebuchadnezzar, they are now faced with it with Darius. And they're using the ultimate tools in the worship of the beast. Fear, force, coercion. Daniel's facing death that is just as imminent to him as it was to his friends. Back facing the blazing furnace. So we get an opportunity to get to know a little bit more about Daniel and how extraordinary he really is. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees. How many times a day? Three times a day. He did it yesterday before the document was signed because yesterday he was worshiping the God of Israel. Today, a new God pops in and says, you're gonna worship me for 30 days. And Daniel goes back to his chapter after it's signed, back to his chamber after it's signed, and he says, no, I think I'm gonna continue to worship the God I was worshiping yesterday. And I'm gonna do it in front of 
everybody. A rooftop chamber. All they have to do is what? Look up. That's what a true man of the God of Israel would do. Now, before we go all amening, which we all did and we should, we have to really remember what we're amening, though. And how far are we willing to take this? See, Daniel's already proved to me that he goes farther than I ever would. He still loves Nebuchadnezzar after all Nebuchadnezzar did after him. And for all I know, that love of God that Daniel showed Nebuchadnezzar may have been the love that God used to save him. The reason you and I will get to walk with Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom. Would you have been able to do that after all Nebuchadnezzar had done to you? That's what I mean, though, is that Daniel was able to still give him that. And then even when it looked like God was taking vengeance on Nebuchadnezzar, I believe that Daniel still hung with him. Who kept Nebuchadnezzar alive during that time? When it would have served Babylon a whole lot better if Nebuchadnezzar would have just died. But after seven years, who protected him? I think it was that third in command guy. So this is what a true man of Israel would do. In the midst of all the noise, Daniel, the third in command, even over those manipulating the decree, is silent. He doesn't say anything. He does not refute it. He's third in command. You don't think that he, uh, before that is signed, that he walks into Darius's office and says, Darius, here's what they're trying to do to you. And by the way, if you sign that, you'll be signing my death warrant. You don't think Darius would have changed his mind in a heartbeat? Daniel knows that. But he didn't do what? He didn't do it at all. The thing they say about the church worshiping this lamb that was slain is that Isaiah says that this king of all kings, that this king who possesses all power, when he was accused falsely of what he was accused of, he goes willingly to his slaughter, not uttering a word. So a while, just a minute ago, you and I were amening, Daniel. You still willing to do it? Most of us, not me, You accuse me of something false, I'm opening my mouth up and I'm opening it up now. I'm calling a PR firm to undefame my reputation. But Daniel just goes silently, allows Darius to sign it, and then goes up and makes sure that everyone knows that nothing is gonna dissuade him from worshiping God today. He doesn't turn to his colleagues, He doesn't turn to the king. He doesn't turn to the power that he has, being third in command, and a king that's willing to make him first in command any day now. He doesn't use any of that power. He doesn't use political strategy to fight political strategy. He does the one thing that will get him killed. He prays. Notice we don't know what the prayer was. His posture is public, but the prayer is what? The prayer is silent. It's still between him and God. It's still the basics of what prayer really is. 
He's not doing anything from public posture. He's not doing anything for the reason. He's doing it because this relationship is vital to him and he's gonna continue to practice it. And he's not doing it for any other reasons. Did he have to pray? Careful now. How many here worship the living God? Do you have to pray? I've heard a lot of people say that prayer is fundamental. If you're gonna worship God, you have to pray. Really? Do we have to? No, absolutely not. Could God make us pray? Sure he could. He's God. He chooses not to, which tells you all you need to know about worship of the living God. It takes a choice in order to fall in love with God, a choice that he created us with and that he will not infringe on, even if somebody is defaming his reputation. Daniel's freedom means much more to God than Daniel's worship. Because Daniel's freedom is what God's worship is based on. So he didn't have to pray. Did it have to be in public? No. You don't have to pray in public in order for it to be prayer. If you think that you've got to pray in public in order to witness people, what do you think your relationship with God is? That he would force you to pray in public? Matthew 6, 6 says, no, it says pray where? Pray in private. It's a different context. Jesus told us to pray in secret when prayer becomes trendy. When prayer becomes popular. When people begin to use prayer as a tool to make us look more righteous than we are, those are the people that need to pray in secret, which is all of us. I want to talk to you today, Greg. I don't want to talk to you based on what you think the church thinks you should do or what anybody thinks you should do. I want to talk to you today. He just wants to talk to us. By the way, that's the purpose of telling us that he knows what we're going to say before we say it. It's not because he he wants to uh, hold anything over us. It's not because he wants to manipulate anything. In fact, it's just the opposite. He said, you're not gonna even be informing me of something I don't know. I wanna talk to you because I simply just love the sound of your voice. So Daniel has a choice to make. He might have been able to adopt different circumstances for a while. He might have been able to pray to God. God, do I really have to pray in public? If you just let me do it in private for 30 days, I won't have to die. but he doesn't. He decides to pray, and in his mind, he decides to pray, which would lead to his death. Praying simply means, for him, death. This isn't some naive action. Daniel knows exactly what he's up against. He's third in command. Darius is getting ready to make him first in command. So look at some of the things about prayer if you want some hints or some insight into prayer. 
I think there's some very practical lessons here. One is it has its own place. If your prayer life has its own place, then that's one thing that you don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about where it's gonna happen. You know where it's gonna happen. In the Walk 201 class, the Walk with God, what we're learning right now about having a quiet time with God is that these are things that you can control. These are easy things that you can control that could make it easier for you to have a regular devotion life. And one is pick a good place. Only make it solitary. Make it a place where you can't be disturbed. It makes it easier to leave other aspects of life behind. It may not happen right away. It may not happen every day, but it makes it easier. It's a discipline. But by the way, it's not Daniel's discipline. It's God's. We try hard. How many here try hard to pray every day? I have to. Apparently, Daniel didn't have to. Because it's something that happened how often? Three times daily. By the way, something else happened three times daily in Israel. First Chronicles 23, it says, they are to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord and likewise at evening to offer all burnt offerings to the Lord on the Sabbaths, the new moons, the fixed festivals in the number set by the ordinance concerning them continually before the Lord. The priests were asked to, uh, to pray at least twice a day. And that is when they offered the continual offering every day. And then we're told in, in, in the battle between uh, the prophets of Baal and Elijah himself and where he, he mocks the God, uh, the Baal that um, they are worshiping. And he says, shout louder. After all, he's a God. He might be in conversation. He might be detained. He may be on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and will wake up. He's hinting that, that Baal doesn't have a regular time. But Elijah knows that God does. It said when noon passed, they kept raving until the hour of presenting the meal offering. So daily, there was the two sacrifices, the daily sacrifice in the morning and the evening, and there was a daily meal offering. I can't be 100% sure that Daniel picked the number three but there's a lot of evidence that say that the reason they pray three times is because the priests stood and offered sacrifices at least three times a day. He also prays facing somewhere. He prays facing what? He prays facing Jerusalem. Why? It's interesting. Why? You know, when you fly to Israel, uh, most of us don't have private jets. So when you fly commercial and you go to Israel and you go to the other side of the nation, your flight probably is going to be an overnight flight. Because you don't want to get to Israel at one in the morning. Okay, you don't want to get anywhere at two in the morning, right? You want to get to Israel where they can take care of you. So it's going to be an overnight flight. What's great is that when you get on the plane and you look and you notice, and you notice that there's probably about three or four rows, usually on every flight that I've ever been on, there's been at least a dozen or so Hasidim, you know, fundamentalist uh, uh, Jewish worshipers, the guys dressed in black with the big hats. They're all on the plane. 
And what's funny is that when you're on that overnight flight, I don't know about you, but I don't get much sleep. But usually when I do get sleep, it's usually at the end when I'm getting real good sleep and then end up getting woken up. And usually about five in the morning or about when the, the day sun is to begin to come through the plane, you sense that something's happening and you look up and every one of those Hasidic men are standing in a space in the aisle in the front and all they have to do is face the front of the plane. Why? Because the plane's headed for Tel Aviv. The plane is headed for Jerusalem. It's facing Jerusalem. But I have to ask Why? Because the temple is in Jerusalem. That's where the sacrifice is at. If the prayers are linked to the sacrifices, what were the sacrifices meant to do? The sacrifices were supposed to find a way to alleviate our guilt and our shame and bring us closer to God. That's what's supposed to happen in this sacrificial system. The word for sacrifice in Hebrew comes from a root that simply means nearer. Sacrifice was supposed to bring us nearer to God. But it's interesting, within the worship in Israel, I always thought that it was the worshiper that approached God with his sacrifice. And it's not the way that they see it. It's not the way that Daniel sees it. It is the person ascending to God, God presenting himself to them. Because he's the one that prescribed the sacrifice. He's actually the one bringing them to him. I thought of it the other way around. Daniel in this story gives us another view. It's him coming to us. And by the way, the prayer to Jerusalem is a gesture of hope. Because the temple holds nothing. They don't pray to, to uh, the, uh, the temple or they don't pray to that's where they think God is because Nebuchadnezzar made sure of that. That temple's destroyed. It's been burned to the ground. Yet Daniel is still facing Jerusalem. Not because he thinks that God is still there. It's because God has promised that one day he will go back there. I will bring you home. Prayer is the dimension of the future. Prayer is the dimension of living out a future that has not happened yet. See, I used to think that the gesture had to do with the place. I used to think that those guys on the plane, that it had to do with that they believe that Jerusalem is holy. No, it's not that God is there. It's that God is bringing them into his presence. And yes, maybe one day it'll be fulfilled in the place. But for right now, the relationship with God is still the same, whether the temple is standing or not. The answer lies in the hope of the future. His prayer is situated in time. It's not situated in space or place. Abraham Heschel, again, observed that the day of the Lord is more important to the prophets than the house of the Lord. That temple has been destroyed since the day Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it and brought them into exile. God, is, is God being present in this story is not because he was confined to the building. The proof that God is present is Daniel and Ezekiel themselves. The spirit of prophecy is God's willingness to be with his people. 
And Daniel is, has the presence of God in him. Ezekiel has the presence of God in him. God says, I don't need a building to be present. And that ultimately, even a thousand years before Jesus comes, he's teaching us, you're the building I want to dwell in. It's not a system. It's not a system of sacrifice or a system that contains the building. It's his presence. See, we were told in the days before Israel demanded a king, Eli the high priest has sons, uh, his own version of Nadab and Abihu. His sons uh, are corrupt and they're doing all kinds of corrupt things with the priesthood. The Philistines are defeating them in battle, so his sons go into the most holy place, they steal the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it into battle with the Philistines. Did it work? No. Hophni and Phinehas were both killed. The, the Ark was captured by the Philistines. They come back and tell Eli that that happened. When he hears the news, he falls over backwards and breaks his neck. The high priest is now dead. And as soon as his daughter-in-law hears that news that her father-in-law is dead, gives birth to one of the boy's child and names him Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. Why? Because the system is wrecked. The priesthood is wrecked. The building is wrecked. God's throne is in the hands of pagan rulers. It's all wrecked. There is no glory here anymore. And yet in the very next chapter, the Lord says to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone hear it tingle. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. By the way, why? It's wrecked. Lord, your throne was supposed to be the Ark of the Covenant. It's gone. And guess who keeps showing up to Shiloh? And how does he keep showing up to Shiloh? In Samuel. That's the message that should send our ears tingling. Not that we know what the temple is about. Not that we know the temple is going to be rebuilt. Hey, by the way, I don't care if the temple is rebuilt or not. Why? Because the temple does not hold the presence of God. The presence of God is found in the humanity of his children. Samuel, you tell them that I'm present. And the fact that I'm telling you to tell them that I'm present, it's because I'm present in you. That's what should send our ears tingling. And that's the posture, if you will. That's everything that's going on behind this prayer. There's nothing naive about it. Daniel knows exactly what he's doing. These men came by agreement, found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Notice, his prayer teaches us the same thing that Jesus taught in the sermon. He gave thanks and he asks he gives thanks from a root meaning open hand, expresses the gratitude of someone who is received. Asking is derived from grace, someone who is not yet received. That's the posture of prayer. We come to God with an empty hand and we ask him to what? To fill it. Give us this day our daily bread.
And where did this prayer get Daniel, by the way? Seemingly nowhere, right? Seemingly nowhere, because when these guys reported this, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. And the injunction which you signed, he keeps making his petition three times a day. The king gave orders. Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. By the way, deliverance doesn't come before the sentence. He's been already been cast in. Why not? Because Darius still believes he's the only one that has the power to deliver. Some power, he can't because he signed an injunction that says it can't be revoked. And he lives by that. So actually out of desperation, he goes, the only guy that can get you out of this, Daniel, is this God that you're serving. But by the way, the reason that you're here is because I signed an injunction that said you can't serve that God anymore. So Daniel, who's really God? I'm sorry you didn't learn that lesson, but This is the language that only Babylon understands. This is the language that only worshipers of Babylon truly understand. And then look what they noticed, uh, what I always noticed that they did. A stone was brought, laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. If the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be broken, why do they have to do this? Because <laughs> nobody trusts anybody. Those guys don't trust Darius to carry this out. Those guys think that Darius is going to come in and do something about this. They already know how he feels about Darius. They still think they've got the, uh, the manipulation in control. They just need to make sure of it. The king goes off to his palace. He spends the night fasting. No entertainment was brought to him. And his sleep, what? What? fled for, from him. I'm not sure that fasting was something that, Dan, uh, that Darius would do uh, out of religion. It could just be that he doesn't have an appetite because he can't sleep. Because he really doesn't want this to happen. Daniel is his favorite. As was Nebuchadnezzar's. King arises at dawn, the break of day, went into haste to the lion's den. When he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said, Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to deliver you from those lions? That God whom you constantly serve, has he been able? Darius is trying to even remind God that Daniel is able <laughs> By the way, God that I don't know, he is faithful to you. If I open this thing up and he's been eaten, I'm holding you liable for this. Then the Daniel speaks to the king, oh king, live forever. He says the same thing that those guys did when they came to Darius. Long live the king. My God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths. They've not harmed me. 
Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, I also, and also toward you, O king, I've committed no crime. Daniel replies to Darius' reference as a living king. As sure, as sure as you are living right now, Darius, so am I. And it's the last thing that he will say to him. I'm living because of my God, Darius. By the way, you are too. You may not know it yet. You may not have had it tested as you have tested me, but you are too. If the king is alive because of the living God, Daniel is alive because of the living God. They're all alive only because of the living God. Not the dead God that Babylonian power tried to make Darius. Just like the furnace and his friends, Daniel experiences salvation from this death outside of himself. It comes from somewhere else. My God sent somebody from above to come down and do something about the lion's appetites. But not by his own wisdom or his courage, but because he trusted in God. And that's how it closes. The king was very pleased, gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatsoever was found in him because he had what? Because he had trusted his God. Right there, that line right there, okay? Right there is where the narrative and the worship of the living God ends. The last word in the worship of the living God versus the worship of Babylon or of the Medes and the Persians right now. The last word is because you trust in God. This is where the relationship of the living God ends in this narrative. Because if you read on, the accusers, uh, Darius, gets, he, he gets angry. He, he, he's so happy that, that Daniel's alive. Then he turns and he takes control of the situation, just as Nebuchadnezzar used to do. And he issues a decree that all of the accusers be brought to him right now. And those accusers are then eaten, not just along, not just them, but also along with their wives and their children. What we forget, if you keep reading, is that here is where the relationship with the, the living God ended, and now the relationship with the dead God, with the Babylonian God, with the false God that uses fear, uh, uh, coercion, uh, maybe even the threat of death, he takes over, and he issues the only decree that a false God can issue, a decree of death. And our problem is, is that we put those two together. And I have to say that most of us, most of us, and a lot of cradle roll teachers teach that this was a good thing to happen. And if I walk away feeling good about this because those accusers got theirs, then I've now severed my relationship with the living God. And I'm thinking that the dead God is a pretty good God to follow. You think the living God wanted this vengeance taken out on those guys? So if I'm feeling pretty good about seeing these guys' guts ripped out of their abdomens, by the way, also happening to their wives and their children, and if I can walk away from that saying, yeah, see what happens when you defy the living God. They're not defying the living God. They didn't get it ripped up because they defied the living God. They got ripped apart and killed because the dead God issued a decree. 
See, because that's where the relationship with the living God ends. Daniel, he trusted his God. And that's it. That's ultimately where it's placed. Psalms use the lion to symbolize power and death. Psalm 22, 13, the mouths open wide at me as a ravening, ravening and a roaring lion. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Life, creation, salvation are all the themes here. Daniel isn't, he doesn't consider himself saved from death. He actually considers himself resurrected from death. I was dead when they sealed this. I was dead when this guy issued this decree because he does have the power to do this to me. He carried that power out. And even though the lions didn't touch him, Daniel still considers himself as resurrected. That's how Hebrews paints this. In this story, it doesn't mention it by name, but it's, it's put this way in Hebrews in the, in the hall of faith. It says this. Sorry. Back one, Grady. There you go. Thanks, man. He who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and what? Shut the mouths of lions. This God, okay, who did all of this by what? By faith, all of this happened. Quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by what? By resurrection. He said all these things happened not because God used offensive earthly power to win wars, it's because he actually allowed martyrdom to happen. He doesn't win a war by killing people. He wins wars by dying for people. Daniel just sees it as a resurrection. Even though he wasn't martyred, he sees his life now not as being saved from death, but actually being resurrected from death. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a what? A better resurrection. So remember when I told you before that you're amening to be Daniel? How far are we willing to go? Because the beast will let you off the hook. The beast will let you worship the lamb that was slain up to the point to where you simply think that you can't do it anymore. Up to the point to where there's a neighbor who you simply cannot love. Up to the point to where you think you've got no more cheeks to turn. The beast will say, go ahead, man, do what you want. Daniel says, no. If you're in it for a penny, you're in it all the way. You don't get to win a war by killing somebody. You get to win a war by dying for your very enemy and having God resurrect you in the end. And if that's not good enough for you, then go ahead and worship the beast. Remember that the, the language of Babylon, the language of the worship of Babylon is now too. It's, it's, it's the here and now. See, it's the only realm that, they, that those gods have control over is the here and now. The only realm that Darius had control over was right there in the lion's den. That's all he's got control. 
They don't look to the future. They don't look to what possibly could happen. So that's why we amen at the beginning of daring to be a Daniel, but then begin to waver when it may mean that we have to be martyrs. And by the way, not martyrs of actually having to die and shed our blood. What if it comes down to having to love somebody that nobody in the world loves? Having to love somebody that it seems that the church is not loving anymore either. To be able to stand up for those who have been marginalized by world and church. And by the way, in the end time, you can't tell the difference between the church and the world doing it because it's the same power. What if you get to the point to where the church is attacking you for being soft. The church is attacking you because you won't call sin, uh, sin. The church is attacking you because there are sinners you won't expel and you keep giving them the love of God. You keep giving them the grace of God. You keep giving them the salvation of God. The church is attacking you and the world's attacking you because they don't like those people either. Will you then dare to be a Daniel? Or will we be satisfied with allowing vengeance to be taken out on people? Will we be satisfied with uh, picturing these arrogant jerks who condemned Daniel to the lion's den, who thought that they had it done, and, and to see their lions rip them apart, and I walk away feeling pretty good about that? Am I willing to be satisfied with that? Is that, a, is that as far as I'm allowing God to take me? Because as much as I'd hate to admit it, Jesus died for those guys too. I don't know. The disconnect, I guess. The disconnect between uh, what we think the words of Jesus sound like versus his actions and what we picture uh, he can do. It's just this disconnect to me. The disconnect of the church from his teachings. Uh, you, know, you know what I mean? You know? It's, it's okay to, uh, to feel good about God taking out his vengeance if we think that that's what God has done. It's okay for us to feel good about these guys getting their comeuppance, okay? But then when it comes to Jesus saying, but I say to you, love your enemies. And then all of a sudden we get very metaphorical. I think he was just speaking in metaphors. Of course he couldn't have meant that, right? I don't know. It's the same I see in pictures in the south of lynchings. These smiling, triumphant people underneath these mutilated, horrifically destroyed corpses. But right there, trusted in his God. That's where the relationship with the living God begins and it ends right there. There isn't anything more to add to that. We don't have a right to tell anybody that God's going to take vengeance out on them. We don't have a right to tell anybody that. Why? Because I trust. And if I'm gonna love the way that Jesus has loved me, it has to begin with trust and end with trust. Not with a decree given by a king who thinks he's God. Not a decree given by a uh, political action group who think that they're speaking for God. 
We trust in God. No matter where he takes us. It's interesting. You know, um, it said that he had trusted in God. In Revelation 13, when we're introduced to the beast, we're, there's a description of what the beast looks like. And he says, the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and his authority. All the power of the, of the nations and the statues and in the zoo, and when you, we get introduced to the zoo in chapter seven, the leopard, the bear, the lion, they all represent these. The power is the same. It's the worlds that have changed. It's the nations that have changed. They're wielding the same power. It's all a conglomeration in the beast. It doesn't matter. The end time just is another con uh, uh, um, con conglomeration of all of it. It's, it's civil, Babylonian, here, power, uh, military, political, uh, being mixed with the power of the church. That's Babylon. The world has never changed in how it wields it. The only thing that changes are the churches that wield it too. Which, by the way, is why there's two beasts. So that no Protestant is supposed to be able to look back to a Catholic and say, boy, you guys sure were a beast. Because if those Catholics are paying attention, they should look forward and say, well, you Protestants, you're the next beast. Every church that had a shot, every church that took a chance, every church that has been given the opportunity to not be Babylon, we ended up choosing to be Babylon. It's one of the reasons why we think that we are rich and have need of nothing, and can lock the lamb that was slain outside of our church, thinking we still could be a church. So I don't mean to be mean, because that's me. I was amening too. And I'm not always willing to go as far. And when I'm not always willing, you know what I do? I take that attitude to God. And he's still working on me. How about you? Okay. Dare to be a Daniel. I'm getting to admire him even more, even though he's like that kid in class who holds up his hands telling the teacher that he forgot to assign homework over Labor Day weekend. You know, just, just the guy that does everything right, you know. He was something, though, wasn't he? That's because God is something. The God he trusted is something. And that's how we all can dare to be a Daniel. Thank you again. I needed the extra time today because like I said, this is the last of the felts. It's now on to the zoo, my fellow Adventists, and I could tell you're excited, okay? And we will get there. It's now on to the zoo. So thank you again for a little extra time. Music